My question is, which verse was Ricky going to sing alone? I notice he conveniently left that part out of the song. Good evening. It's a pleasure to see you this evening, and it's a pleasure to open the Word of God. And what we're going to do this evening is turn back to Matthew chapter 6, and in so doing, we're going to look at the next phrase of this prayer. Now, I want to remind you what our goal is. Our goal is that we would not only understand some of the beauties that God has in mind with prayer, but our goal is to be exercised to pray. Most of my Christian life, I thought prayer was a recitation of lists to God, as if he had trouble remembering, and it was my job to help him remember. And then I decided that maybe I should study prayer. The need was that our assembly was in bad straits. I heard Jabe Nicholson preach one time, you might know him, the poet on wheels, and, uh, and he said... You know, if you ask believing in his name, he promises to do that which you've asked. That's in John chapter 14. And I said to God, you know, if that's all you want me to do is ask you, I'll ask you till you get sick of me. Of course, <laughs> the word of God would say that's impossible. I would never get sick of that. But nonetheless, I decided to study prayer. And in that study, I realized that prayer to the heart of God is one of mo the most precious things that he enjoys to share with you. And as it turns out, that when you pray, all of those things that you desire to be like Christ, to grow in your knowledge and understanding of your King, of your Savior, all of a sudden those things have a much easier, an easy clarity for you. They have an easier visibility for you. They're, they're much more um, uh, understandable. And because what happens in prayer is that your heart becomes knit, interwoven with the heart of God. You actually become one, which was a prayer of the Lord Jesus. I pray that they may be one as you and I are one. So prayer became, became way more to me than lists of recitations, hours upon hours of mumbling the same words, throwing in an amen in prayer meeting to let everybody know I was listening. Anybody ever do that before? No. <laughs> I love you, brother, but you're lying. <laughs> And so that's why we've done what we've done. So this morning, we were looking at the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you might turn there. And we were specifically looking at the paragraph that begins in verse 9. And it says in this, in this, in this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this morning, I reviewed for you each of those phrases or partial phrases and and tried to add the color back that we had in focus in the previous uh, series uh, over the last several months. We specifically discussed verse 11, give us this day our daily bread, the idea of 
of our personal dependency, his personal reliability, the idea that there's the, the danger of regularity that is uh, the expectation and forgetting the source of such provision. He wants us to be fresh and getting that fresh bread from him. And then finally, this sort of what I would call corollary or continuity, really. And we talked about how the Lord loves it for you to come. I'm not like the unjust judge that is irritated with the widow who brings her case before the judge and she, he wants to do something about it to get her off her back. God says, the Lord Jesus says, I'm nothing like that. I want you to get on my back, as it were. I want you to knock. I want you to ask. I want you to come. I, don't want, I want you to be con, uh, constant in prayer, continuing uh, steadfastly. I don't want you to quit. I want you to be about it. This is what I prefer for you. Now, um, it's noted that it's, through, it's halfway through the prayer of the model prayer the Lord Jesus gives that we actually begin to ask about our needs. The first half of the prayer is really about our relationship with God and our orientation, our submissive heart to Him. But now, halfway through, after we set our hearts right, we begin to ask about our daily bread. Now, we get to, uh, so that covers a personal need, and then we get into verse 12, which now has to deal with inter, uh, um, interrelational needs. And he says this, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Does that bother anybody in the room? Anybody? That's one of those questions that's somewhat rhetorical. And, you're, and, and if it doesn't bother you, right about now you should think, I wonder if it should bother me. And that's what I want you to think. And the answer is that it should bother you. And the reason why it should bother you is because it sounds like God's forgiveness of me is directly dependent upon the forgiveness I have with one another. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Isn't, aren't we saved by grace through faith alone and that my interaction uh, with someone else, a work Someone else should not enter into the equation of being right with God or forgiven by God. That's why it should bother you. It has potential to distort the clear teaching of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and no works should be added. To grant God for grant to grant us forgiveness based on whether I forgive someone else, well, that would be a work. And if you're thinking, boy, that doesn't sound, uh, something sounds like it's inconsistent, you would be correct. We, we need to understand this little paragraph, this, ver this verse a little better. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain a concept called um, parental forgiveness versus um, covenantal forgiveness. And that's going to help resolve the dilemma that I just created for you. Then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to talk about what forgiveness means. Because after we've defined our terms, we now have to go back and say, well, what does this verse mean and how should we apply it? And in order to do that, we should understand forgiveness. And the third thing that we're going to do, if we have the usual 80 minutes that we talked about this morning, is that we're going to talk about some principles that can be derived from this particular verse. So there's three points. We're going to set the definitions, we're going to understand the concept, and then we're going to extract some principles. And the title of this message this evening is 
forgiven. All right, let's get started. What is covenantal forgiveness? That sounds a little bit kind of scary to me. Me too. Me too. So in order for us to understand it, let's begin by looking at the concept in Hebrews. So if you would please turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I think I have the wrong chapter there. Forgive me. Let me get my glasses out. It always helps. Oh, sorry. Hebrews chapter 8. My apologies. All right, so in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, you're going to have a comparison made between a new covenant and an old covenant. Now, the word covenant shouldn't alarm you. It simply means that, 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 that God is making an agreement. God is crafting a document that He plans to live up to. And it turns out that there have been a covenants that God has made. Now, one of those covenants is what we call the covenant of the law. And that's when, back in um, Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, where God said to the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, He said this, now listen, I'm going to make an agreement with you, and the terms, the stipulations of this agreement are the following. If you obey me, I will bless you. Now, this is uh, well outlined in the book of Deuteronomy. And the same token, if you disobey me, I will discipline or curse you. So whether you're on the blessing side of the covenant or the cursing side of the covenant is, so, is dependent upon your obedience to the stipulations that God gave in His law. It's what we call a conditional covenant. It depends upon something. But this new covenant that we're going to read about in a second is not a conditional covenant. There is nothing that says, if you do this, then we'll, this will happen. God takes full responsibility to make this covenant as dependent upon Him as absolutely possible. That's what we call the new covenant. And it's the very covenant which you partake in, the very agreement that God crafts in the future day with Israel, which you partake in now, and, and, and the terms of that covenant include this idea of forgiveness. So let's read about this new covenant. Verse 7, for if that the first covenant had been faultless, that's the one in Deuteronomy, then no place would have been need, needed for the second, no, no place had been sought for a second covenant, because finding fault with them, finding fault with who? The children of Israel. Why? Because the first covenant did not give the wherewithal to actually keep the stipulations. The second covenant gives us the Spirit of God, whereby God now lives His life through us and gives us the ability to keep the stipulations of the new covenant. And here's what he says, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. That's actually a quote from the Old Testament, and it will be with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, and because of this new covenant, including that which is to come also now, we have this sort of, we, we, we partake in the terms. 
not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's what happened in Exodus and Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers and such. Because they did not continue in my covenant, I disregarded them. They, they, they followed the stipulation that said that if you don't obey me, you will receive cursings. That's what he means when he says, I disregarded them. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something about this new covenant. You will see the phrase, I will, five times. The noun, I, the verb, will, five times, that combination. And I point that out to you because when you read the book of Isaiah, you will realize that Satan, Lucifer, used the same five I will statements in rebellion to corrupt and divide uh, in a coup attempt in heaven. But here God uses the same five I wills to craft, create, and join us together to forgive us. Interesting, isn't it? All right, let's read it. He says, where was I? Oh, yeah. This is the covenant I will make in those days, says the Lord. I will make the, uh, where was I? And I will, I will be their God, and they will be my people. So there's an establishment of God as their authority. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. Oh, I'm sorry, I, sk- I started too early. Please forgive me. Go back to the middle of verse 10. Let's do this properly. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. All right? So what God says is, is that in this new covenant, I'm going to use the Spirit of God to teach you the Word of God. Number two, I will be their God. So there's an establishment of their authority. Now he expands his first statement. He says, none of them will teach his neighbor, know the Lord, for all shall know me. What he means is he's ref- this is a reference to the first John passage that talks about how the Spirit of God teaches us. Let's look at the next verse. I will be merciful to their unrighteousness. Oh, I will be unmerciful to, or excuse me, I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. Did you hear that? I will remember no more. See, when God says that you have a, there's a covenantal forgiveness, what he means is, is that he is once and for all establishing an agreement with saved mankind, those who trusted Christ as Savior, and the stipulations of this covenant will be only blessings to you. And some of the greatest blessings are this idea that God will show you mercy, give you what you need when you don't deserve it, that is forgiveness of sins. And he says it this way, on their sins and lawless deeds, I won't remember anymore. I choose not to consider them as evidence against them. That's what we call covenantal forgiveness. It's part of the stipulations of this new agreement of God. Now, that's totally different. Turn back to Matthew 6 now. That's totally different than what you would call parental forgiveness. Covenantal forgiveness doesn't change. It's bedrock. It's foundational. It doesn't get altered. It is forever written, as it were, in stone with the blood of Jesus Christ. 
It's, it, it's different than parental forgiveness. Now, parental forgiveness is what Matthew chapter 6 ver, uh, and verse 12 is talking about. And that means that there is a relational aspect that you have with God. And that ongoing relational aspect that you have of a child of God can be stunted. And it can be stunted based on how you're interacting with other people. You're still in the family, but you're not on good terms with your father. That would be parental forgiveness. That's what it's talking about here. The analogy is very, very simple. It's one that's been used many times. But I have five sons, or six sons, excuse me. I have six sons, and all of them will always be my sons. None of them will ever not be my sons. It's impossible to change them. Some of them have done things in such a manner in their lives which has strained our relationship, right? And in so doing, we find that there is sometimes difficulty in having a closeness that we had prior to those decisions. So they've never quit being my sons. They have a covenant with me as a father, I being their birth father, uh, and, and that is ir irrevocable and unalterable. But the ongoing interaction with, a young, with my young people can have some um, waxing and waning, some up and downs because of the behavior that they have done in our relationship. It's strained our closeness and intimacy. The latter is what's being talked about in this passage. So, let's be clear. Once you're saved, you never have your birth certificate revoked. Once you're saved, you are always saved. Once you're a child of God, God never goes back and nullifies that moment of new birth. Never. Because it says you will have everlasting life. You cannot have everlasting life and nullify the moment of being trusting Christ and it still be true. They are, they are terms that cannot mean the same thing at the same time. Everlasting, by definition, means that your birth certificate will never, ever, ever be revoked. Now, I want to be clear on that. Eternal security is what, is what we call it, and it is died in the blood of Christ. However, that being said, now you're a child of God, now you have an ongoing relationship with your heavenly Father, that's identified in verse 1, our Father in heaven, and that relationship can have some moments of tension. Many of us know exactly what that feels like. Now, Jesus is saying the number one cause of tension in an ongoing fatherly relationship is dependent on your interaction with someone else. God takes that personally. And what he specifically says in the text, which is now point number two, the understanding the concept, he says you've got to deal with this idea of forgiving one somebody else's debts. You've got to forgive those uh, others who are your debtors for you to have 
an ongoing clear conscience relationship with your heavenly Father, whereby he will, he will be able to continue to teach you and show you and guide you and lead you. You're on good speaking terms with your Father because you've been able to resolve the issues of, of conflict between one another. That's the debt. Now, in order to understand that, we need to understand the concept of forgive. It, you, it's used twice in this verse, twice within ten words. Now, there, there are two primary, uh, primary words in the Greek language used to be trans, or that are translated forgiveness in the English language. The one that's used here is, is pronounced ephemi, ephemi. That, is the, that, that word is, um, uh, means to, and you may have heard this before, means to send away, to release, to let go. And then the other word that's used in the New Testament, uh, translated roughly around the same number of times as the word aphemi, is the word kerios. And that word means um, kind of like a, a gracious, benevolent act, a gift. It's in the Gospels that aphemi is mostly used. For example, when the lady who washed the Lord Jesus' feet in Simon's house of Luke chapter 7, it says, and her sins, which are many, are aphemi, sent away. But in the epistles, the primary word that's used most of the time, not all the time, most of the time, is this word kerios. And it says this, uh, as, you, uh, as Christ has forgiven you, you forgive another. Kerios, you bestow a gracious act upon that other person that you've received. And so the concept is, is that God, out of the sheer benevolence, goodness of his heart, the love of his heart, he does something. And what he does, his motivation is uh, all out of love and care of his own character. What he does then is he takes you and he separates you from your sins. And he not only separates you, uh, but he then takes your sins and takes them away from you, never to be found again. Now, that's how you've been forgiven. Now, there's a, there's a really graphic illustration of this in the Old Testament, and if you're unfamiliar, for, uh, I'll explain it. If you're familiar with it, please bear with the explanation. But the, ex but the event is called the Day of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, right? And uh, any study, Leviticus chapter 16 specifically, will help you understand that. And the Day of Atonement was really extraordinary. The high priest would change clothes. Now, normally the high priest of that dispensation would be in robes which were embroidered with gold thread and they had little pomegranates on it and different, different designs and bells on the hem and a breastplate and the hair thing, the hair, headdress deal and the, across the forehead. And you could recognize that guy from a, a, a hundred yards away. Who could miss him, right? But on this day, he put on white linen. What does that mean? Look like anybody else. Lose them in a crowd. And on this day, they would actually take a series of four animals, two, or two bulls, I think it was two bulls, is that right? Did I say that right? And two goats. The bulls were, were sacrificed for the sins of the priests, 
but the goats were for the people. Now, you take the first goat and you would um, sacrifice its life. Now, if you haven't seen it, it's somewhat gruesome. You slit the throat of the animal, severing the carotid arteries, which you could imagine would continue to pump and the blood would be dispersed. Now, remember, what color did he have on? White linen. I don't know what you think, but white and red, it shows up, doesn't it? And if you've ever seen an event like this, you realize that the individual who is performing the surgical procedure ends up covered in, in, in all of his front wear, his arms, his chest, some of his legs with the, with the blood of that animal that was sacrificed. I saw this in Africa. It was very graphic. That's also very picturesque, right? picturesque that you would be under the blood of Christ. Anyway, you take that blood of that first animal and you go into the second compartment of that tent structure called the tabernacle. The second compartment housed the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had three items in it. Brother David mentioned one of them this morning, which was the jar of manna. And each of those items spoke really uh, they were born out of man's rebellion. The jar of manna was there because they were mad at God and they didn't think he could provide a, a food in the wilderness. They had the second tablets of the, of the Ten Commandments because uh, the first tablet was broken when Moses came down from the mountain and found that they were already uh, violating the first and second uh, commandment of God. And so God had to make a second copy written by the finger of God on granite. And the third thing in there, that was the uh, Aaron's rod that budded, which was also born out of rebellion because Korah and all those other guys were saying that, that uh, it was uh, Moses does, uh, and Aaron shouldn't be the only leaders of the people. And the earth opened up, gobbled up those, that family group, and, and they had a, a showdown at the tabernacle with a stick and whoever's stick put out flowers and, and, and fruit, that would be God's chosen leadership. And so that rod was Aaron's and it was put in the Ark of the Covenant. Every one of those was rebellious, direct, rebellious, sinful, iniquitous transgressions against God. Now they're put in this gold box, that's the Ark of the Covenant. Most of us know the gold box because they watch Spielberg's Law, Raiders of the Lost Ark. That's totally fiction, but this one is true. You got this gold box, and it has these symbols and, and memorials of man's rebellion, and then you put this gold sort of plate on it. Now, that gold plate had a name. It was called the mercy seat, and it, was a, it, it covered the opening of the box perfectly. It wasn't too short. It wasn't too long, but what it did is it hid the view of all those memorials of man's rebellion, it totally covered it. You couldn't see it. You didn't have a little space where you could kind of peek in. It was all out of view. Now, the high priest would take the blood of that goat that was now splattered all over his clothes, and he would go before that box, which had the angelic beings facing each other, and it says he would sprinkle it on and before the Ark of the Covenant seven times, meaning this, it was perfect in the eyes of God to cover, that would be the perfect act in the eyes of God to cover their sins. And that covering had a real picturesque meaning. Mercy was the covering. Isn't that, isn't that kind of cool? 
I always find that God's very clever about communicating artistically. And so that's what would happen. Now, what you would do is after the priest did that with the first goat, he went back outside and he took the second goat. Now, the second goat, he, they, they would, the priest would put their hands on the second goat. And as representatives of the entire nation of Israel, they would confess the sins uh, of the people on the second goat. Oh, God, Yahweh, we confess that we were complaining and we confess that we were this. And they, like they were transferring on, that's the symbolism. And then they took that second goat and they took that second goat way out in some desolate place and they released the goat. They think, man, that is the craziest thing. And we, we, we don't do that today, do we, Steve? No, Ricky, we don't, because it was done by Christ. You see, what happened is Christ shed His blood, as it were, presented such a sacrifice and evidence of such into the tabernacle of heaven, and the mercy of God was able to be rushed upon us. And what happened to our emblems of rebellion? They were covered under the blood of the Lord Jesus. In a symbolic way, then He takes the conf- those sins and puts it on that other God, sends it away, separates the sins from the sinner. That's how you've been forgiven. That's how you, that's the covenant aspect of forgiveness. Now he says, you remember that concept and you apply it to somebody else. So, my dear friend Ricky, let's just pretend, not that you ever have done this or will ever do this, but let's just pretend that you sell me one of your grand photographs, which are very nice, I might add. But in this particular case, I cheat you. Instead of paying the normal $500 a copy, just kidding. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I'm too low. <laughs> I, 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 I cheat you and I only pay you five bucks, which I thought was a good deal and I'm a good negotiator, right? Now, at that moment, I sent, I violated you. I, I pretty much lied to you and cheated you at that, right? So, when you separate me from the sin, what you do is you say, okay, Steve, you violated, you, you did something wrong, but out of the benevolence and love, love of your heart for me, what you do is you say, but I'm going to treat you as if you never did that. I'm going to separate you from your sin. And as a result, you therefore have forgiven me, right? That's what's happening. And what God is saying is, when you do that to me, when you forgive me as somebody who violated you and caused a debt against you, God says, now listen, that allows me to be in right relationship with you. Because if you don't do that, Ricky, what happens is you become uh, you become my master, don't you? Steve owes me a debt. Steve owes me. And so every time I see you, you come up and say, hey, Steve, uh, you, got, you got my $495, right? And every time, I, I, so I start dodging you, and I don't want to see you, and I quit calling you, and I, I, I block your number on my phone, right? And what happens is there is a, a, a real problem between us. And what God is saying, when you have that problem with me or with Steve, what happens is, is it shuts down our ability to, to be relational between you and your Father in heaven. 
But when you're able to forgive me of that debt and, and remove such bitterness of your soul against me, what happens is God says, now that opens up the opportunity for you and me, your Father in heaven, for Ricky and the Father in heaven to actually grow and be nurtured in our relationship as father and son. Now, this is a pretty important, important aspect of the Christian life. I was in, what time do I end? 7.30? Is that right? Okay. So I was in Japan, and my aunt was saved there. My aunt, her name is uh, Yukio-san. And she traveled with me. It was 12 years ago. She traveled to a, a little, an assembly called Kyodo in Tokyo, Japan. It's on the main island of Honshu. And at that moment, in, at that point in her life, she wasn't born again yet. But she came to the meeting, and I preached the gospel there, and I was so grateful that she came, because about two months later, she trusted Christ as Savior. I was thrilled. Two years after that, I went back to see her. And when I went to see her, of course, I'm speaking through an interpreter, she said to me, now I have a question. How do I handle those who have hurt me? in the Christian life. And basically what she was saying was this. I have those who have hurt me and I don't know how to handle them. I don't know what it's like to forgive anyone and I'm finding that it's affecting my walk with my Father in heaven. What do I do? And that's a, this scripture here is actually the answer. Now saints, What I have to say next is really tough. But there is a whole lot of strained walks with God because of ongoing strained tension with each other. And what the Lord Jesus is saying is your parental relationship, the parental forgiveness of God, is directly related to your inter-saint forgiveness of each other. And that is so difficult to handle. The Bible does not say you, can, uh, you don't have to forgive uh, if you're correct. It doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say you don't have to forgive um, if, uh, if they don't come to you. The Bible does say that if a person repents and asks forgiveness, you forgive him. But that doesn't mean that you can exist in a state of ongoing embitteredness against someone and defiantly say, I will only forgive them when they come to their senses and approach me about well, how, how they've wronged me. The Bible doesn't say that. You see, God in heaven has forgiven you, lock, stock, and barrel, and He waits for you to come to Him in repentance at the point of salvation. He's already got it all settled. And that's the way we need to be. So this idea of forgiveness, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, is huge, gigantic. We cannot ignore it. And I would like to suggest to you that it is perhaps one of the greatest issues in the assembly life as we know it today.
I spent the better part of the last three years traveling around the world and country. And I've lost count of how many stories I've been told of souls that are embittered because of this issue remaining unsolved. I think this is perhaps a moment in our history in which this should be changed. And the only way I think it can be changed is if we understand with clarity what the Lord Jesus is teaching. Now let's just let's extract a couple of principles together. So this is point number three. All right, point number three is this. Prince, uh, it will be about two or three principles. Principle number one. The spiritual health and closeness with our Heavenly Father is directly proportional to our transparency and closeness with our spiritual family. I basically summarize what I've tried to say in the last 20 minutes, which is this. My closeness with God is directly proportional, dependent on my closeness, transparency, brokenness with my brother. Right? There is no way to get around it. Do you want an assembly that is walking with God? Do you want elders that are walking with God? Do you want families that are walking with God? Then you cannot skip this issue of interpersonal forgiveness. Do you want a marriage that has the, has, has the, the health of God in it? Then a husband and wife have to wrestle with these things and, and forgive and, and, and be able to, to have that, that uh, concept of covenant forgiveness living in their marriage. I was telling a couple this afternoon that Janet and I, we, we've had to really go through to go to the woodshed on this and learn by the hand of the Spirit of God this concept. And we, you don't have to do this, but we came to a point in our lives where when we were wrong and I did something wrong or she dumped something wrong, we'd sit down, we'd look each other in the eye. We would say it out loud, not only what we did, but we also named how it injured the other person. And then the person who was the, the guilty one would say to the spouse, I, for example, to my wife, I have sinned against God and you, and this is how I hurt you. And I'd lay, lay it out. And then I'd look her in the eyes, and I'd say, no, I can't ever undo what I did, but I'm begging you, would you please forgive me? You don't demand forgiveness. You're in debt. You don't have anything to pay the debt with. Would you please forgive me? My wife, she turns to me. I know it sounds scripted and kind of corny, but I'm telling you, it helps for the flesh to hear you say this stuff. And she says to me, I forgive you. She says those words, looking me right back in the eye. And you know what happens at that moment in our marriage? That issue is buried. We don't do that kind of popular counselor thing where you write it all out and you go in the backyard and you dig a hole. We would have dug up our whole backyard by now. But what we do is we practice the way we've been forgiven. And the Lord says, this is important for how I relate to you. All right, principle number two. This is really important. Hidden sin destroys effective prayer. Principle number two, hidden sin destroys 
effective prayer. What Jesus is saying is, if this is not, if there isn't this interpersonal forgiveness, then you don't have this ongoing healthy relationship with your heavenly Father. Technically, we call it fellowship. And if that fellowship is somewhat stunted or in strain, then that which you've petitioned God is actually perhaps, perhaps going to be held in jeopardy, if I may. You see, God is saying, hidden sin matters to me. Now, is there anything in the Bible that could collaborate such a statement, such a principle? Well, uh, just a few things. Let me give the Aiken one that I think you told me this weekend. And that's simply this, that the guy Aiken, as you know, stole the bacon, you know, that cliche. He stole that stuff from Jericho. He hid it in his tent. He got his whole family involved. The next battle, which no one knew about Aiken's dirty deed, they went out to fight the men and, and uh, people of Ai, and they lost miserably, and some people lost their lives. And Joshua gets on his face, and he's kind of like, oh, no, we're going to die. Everybody's going to know we were beaten. Now we're sitting ducks. Joshua, man, he was such a great ruler or leader, and now he's like crying out his eyes. And the Lord comes to him in the book of Joshua, and he says, get off the ground. <laughs> I just love that. Get up. What are you doing? There's sin in the camp here. There's a reason why this happened. I can't bless you because there is hidden sin. And that has to be dealt with. Well, a lot of times the hidden sin that we have in our own lives is this interpersonal lack of forgiveness that's going on. One other example is Gehazi. Gehazi, uh, he, that guy, man, he was out there and he, st he, st he lied about God to Naaman and he took Naaman's present, which was what, about three, uh, I think it was 300,000 worth of dollars and he hid it in his, his little hut and, and hidden sin. Elisha says, hey, where'd you go? Gehazi says, nowhere. Hidden sin. And he says, did my heart not go with you when you called upon Naaman and, and he turned around and answered your question? Hidden sin matters to God. I got to ask you this, and please forgive me for the bluntness of this question, but do you have hidden sin in your life right now? It is directly affecting your fellowship with your heavenly Father as you sit where you are right now. I say that not just to you, I say that to me. There have been moments in the last month where God has really dealt with my hidden sin. And maybe tonight He's dealing with that with you and I just beg of you, don't let the evening end without dealing with the hidden sin of your soul. What's the last principle? Brokenness. In order for you to come to a point where you can forgive another's debt, it demands that you and I have a brokenness, a sense of our place before God and His Word and how we've been forgiven, and that governs us, that breaks us, that crushes us in a sense. And I say, I've been forgiven so much, of course I can forgive Steve of his $495. Do you remember that passage in Matthew 18? The guy owned 10,000 talents and he couldn't pay it. And so he pleaded with his debtor, or yeah, his debtor, and he, or, or the banker, and he said, give me more time 
and I will pay it all. Okay, do you know how much 10,000 talents is worth? Price of gold, two years ago, June 1st, 10,000 talents, $13.4 billion. Now, I know, Mark Stratton, you have that lying around, don't you? Yeah. No. In fact, how many lifetimes would you have to work to gain $13.4 billion? Well, a Roman centurion would have to work 20 to 30 lifetimes. You can't pay the debt. It's not a matter of more time. You can't pay it. And what, what about the guy that owed the 100 denarii? Or, yeah, the 100 denarii. It was equivalent to around 50 bucks. 50 bucks. And so what, what's being taught in that parable is the guy that owed the 50 bucks, he thought he could pay it back too. Give me more time. The point is you don't have enough time. You don't have enough resources. And you, the guy that was uh, forgiven the 13.4 billion on 10,000 talents, what you, you do is you recognize that I've been forgiven such a great debt because I couldn't pay it, and now I'm in a situation where you can't pay the debt either, and you know, although it might only be 50 bucks, I can forgive you because I've been forgiven of so much more. And when we forget that, when we forget that, we're not broken. But when we remember that, the weight of the truth of God's Word melts our heart, melts us to a humble position, and we absolutely can extend what we've been given to someone else. Broken. Three principles. First principle is that our relationship with our Heavenly Father is directly proportional to the relationship with one another. Principle number two, hidden sin matters to the heart of God. And principle number three, brokenness should govern the soul. Let's pray. Father, I... I I marvel at the quality, the cost, and the quantity of forgiveness that we have in Jesus Christ. The quality of forgiveness that never allows my sins to see the light of day again. The quantity of forgiveness that covers all of my sin and Father, the cost of your Son's life for my sin. What can we say to you? How can we not forgive one another? How can we not behave in a way in which we have received the great forgiveness of God? Father, I don't know the answers to those questions. I just know that I and my history have violated those things, and I have disregarded those things before other people. And I want to confess to you, Father, I don't want to be like that. Please, take, take your word and touch every soul in the room, my heart included, so that we would forgive one another as we've been forgiven so that the parental relationship I have with you is not just preserved, but is flourishing. In Jesus' name.